This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I am Zach Buss, an investor at Arena Capital, and today we are breaking down Vistra Corp. Vistra is an integrated retail, electricity, and power generation company. It was spun out of Energy Future Holdings and its emergence from bankruptcy and subsequently combined with Dynegy in 2018. The company, through its subsidiaries, is involved in electricity generation and wholesale and retail energy sales to commercial, municipal, and residential customers across the U.S. The company serves 4 million Americans across 20 states, producing 37,000 megawatts of capacity, enough to power 20 million homes. To break down Vistra, I am joined by John DeGullis, Partner and Portfolio Manager at Soundshore Management. We go through the dramatic evolution of the industry, including John's history with Enron and TXU Energy, the acquisition track record of Vistra, including its recent acquisitions of merchant nuclear power provider Energy Harbor, and zoom out on the broader electricity production and distribution business and history in the United States. We hope you enjoy this conversation on VistraCorp. All right, John, thanks for joining us to break down Vistra. I thought an interesting place to start would just be with your history with this industry. Obviously, it's been punctuated by the likes of Enron and TXU or Energy Future Holdings. And so why don't you kind of take us through the last 25 years of how we got to where we are today? We've gone through a long period of time here since the early 90s of deregulating not all of, but parts of the electricity markets in the U.S., We've had this very long transition from a fully regulated electricity business or markets, if you will, with the traditional regulated utilities that everybody knows of, the Duke Energies and Southerns of the world, to breaking up the market a little bit between the generation side, so the actual making of the electricity, the transmission and distribution side of it, and then the retail side of it, which is actually procuring the customers and delivering the power. And some markets remain completely, for the most part, still regulated all the way through. And the local utility has all three of those services. And then you have markets like Texas, which the acronym for it is ERCOT, where those three functions are actually split up. What you've seen is a series of business models trying to take advantage of the opportunity to be either a marketer or a retail provider, just a T&D or wires, and then just a merchant energy provider, which is the term people use for the generators. All the while competing with the really regulated utilities, you have a series of regulators that are involved for obvious reasons. Electricity and the sustainability or reliability of electricity is so critically important to our society that there's a pretty heavy regulatory overhang. So you take a step back and look at what happened in the late 90s 
And the most famous episode, of course, had to do with Enron, which originally was a natural gas pipeline company. And they then forward integrated into the electricity markets, natural gas, of course, being a very important fuel source to generate electricity. And at the time, some of these markets were opening up and Enron got into the electricity business and so did El Paso and there were a whole host of names back then. And they got themselves into trouble in a lot of different ways, but mostly by taking advantage of the accounting rules at the time, where if you booked a, let's say you booked a 10-year commitment to deliver electricity to a commercial provider somewhere, and it was 10 million bucks a year, so it had a nominal value of $100 million, you could then discount it back. And at the time, you could assume a margin and book all that as profit in the year that you actually contracted for it. And of course, the cash flows would follow along in a 10-year basis. And so that, in a nutshell, is what Enron was doing, not only in the electricity markets, they started to do it in broadband and other places. And so the reported earnings were nowhere near what the real cash flow was at the time. And of course, there was some debt involved. And so this all came crashing down, which was the first wave of restructurings that happened in the energy merchant power markets. And then in the 2000s, and this is where I'll get into the beginning of what is now Vistra, TXU, which was the utility in the northern part of Texas, basically Dallas and the surrounding areas, also had some exposure to these power markets and the stock was whipped around and they had some wholesale power businesses that they ran that got themselves into trouble. They brought in a turnaround executive to cut costs and rationalize the business, which he did, and stabilized it. Good cash flow generator and famously as well, was at the time the largest LBO in history. And that was at the time in 2007 when TXU went private, led by KKR. Because of the nature of the electricity business historically, particularly on the regulated side, capital intensive business, very low growth, mostly regulated for the the history of it. Debt is always involved. These are levered balance sheets because the cash on cash returns for the business over time are usually in the mid single digits. And so to get yourself into the low double digits or even around a 10% ROE, you needed leverage. So often there is debt and levered capital structures have also been a big part of the history of this business. I'm bringing that up for a reason. You know, you then famously an LBO, of course, is by definition using leverage. And so TXU levered themselves up just at a time when we were about to have a natural gas glut. And for reasons that I could certainly spend a lot of time on it, but on the margin, when you look at the sources for electricity, natural gas, which is now about 40%, just under 40% of the fuel source for the electricity in the United States today. In many markets, the price of natural gas is the key fuel source in driving the changes in electricity prices. Bad luck, I guess, on the part of KKR and the management team, but early 2000s, shale revolution hit. We found a lot more very low-cost gas in the United States. Uh, gas prices went from 8 bucks down to 2 or even less. And in many markets, electricity prices followed. And so those generating assets were making far less money than they had predicted. And ultimately uh, was one of the largest bankruptcies ever in 2014. So 
now you have a second set of restructurings and bankruptcies in this, at the time was really the beginnings of the merchant energy and deregulated electricity markets. Vistra, at least the major part of it, is actually the generating assets, so the power plants, if you will, from TXU. They called it Luminant at the time. These consultants come up with these names. I have no idea where they come up with them. But it was called Luminant, which was the power plants. They've got a nuclear facility. They've got gas plants, coal plants. At the time, a little bit of wind, but traditional fuel source plants. They then also began to do some acquisitions on the retail side. So that's when you're a provider of the electricity. You actually are don't own any physical assets. And so that's today's Vistra. So I think we've done a good job setting the stage for how this business came to be in its current form. I want to spend a couple of minutes here going deeper on the specifics of their business model. So maybe just start with a brief overview of how you'd explain this business to somebody that was completely unfamiliar with Vistra specifically in the markets they operate in and what their revenue model is. Sure. So the Vistra of today is a generator and marketer of electricity. And it's about three quarters of what they'd call a merchant generator. So these are power plants that generate the electricity. And then about a quarter of the business is what's referred to as their retail business, where they are the actual client, you know, facing contact for both retail and commercial customers to source their electricity. And that business is around a billion in EBITDA, so it's about a quarter of the size of the profitability. That business, the retail business, is principally in Texas. They do have some smaller exposures in other parts of the country, but that business is, for the most part, in Texas, what's known as the ERCOT region, of the electricity region. And on the generating side, Texas is also their biggest region, but they also have exposure in the mid-Atlantic and Midwest, which in terms of the electricity or regional transmission organizations is called PJM. And that stretches from all the way across the United States, starting in Illinois and moving all the way across and through Ohio and some in Pennsylvania and so forth. So those are the two principal regions. They also do have some exposure out in California That's in the form of a couple of gas plants and then also two big storage facilities as well called Moss Landing out in California. So that's their business. And they make money by selling electricity. So they're either selling electricity through the wires in all those different areas. So whoever owns the transmission and distribution, and they do it by nuclear facilities, natural gas powered, coal, wind, solar, and even battery, as I mentioned. So it's all of the above, if you will, in terms of the way they generate the electricity, but nevertheless, they're selling into those markets. And then the retail business makes money as a spread. As a retail customer, you could sign them up called TXU Energy in Dallas or Houston, and they'll be your electricity provider. And then they go and source the electricity. Sometimes because they've got their own generating facilities in Texas, those electrons could be coming from their own generating facilities or they've got a wholesale and trading operation that sits in between these two businesses. And if it's more economical for them to go out and buy the power from another source, they'll do that. 
there's a natural hedge there as well, as you might imagine. The retail business is inherently short power. They're sourcing it from different places. They don't have their own generating facilities. And then the, the rest of their business is inherently long power. Ultimately, and principally in the Texas market, they're still net long power for the whole company together. But that's how they make money. Maybe now, I think the best way to do it is just to talk us through the value chain of merchant power from generation to retail. And then you alluded to where Vistra sits in that ecosystem. But now we have all types of pressures around renewables, the Inflation Reduction Act. So how do you think about where they sit within this industry and what's important? On the last 10 years, the big change in the electricity markets has been the rise of alternative renewables, if you will. So wind, solar, for the most part. The political and regulatory push to develop those as fast as we can, given the overall needs to get our carbon footprint down. This has been going on actually for years, and there's a lot to still go, but it's a combination of closing, for the most part, the coal plants, which you go back to the year 2000 or even 2010, and coal would have been 40% of the U.S.'s fuel source. Today, it's at 23, and it's projected to be less than 10% 20 years from now. Natural gas has grown because of the shale boom and the low cost of natural gas. And it's also, in spite of it being carbon, much cleaner than coal plants. And then the alternatives have grown. And so depending on the region, you've seen it. First, it was mostly wind, and now solar is coming quickly behind it. And so renewables today are around 20% of the generating capacity. And that's supposed to more than double over the last 20 years to something in the 40 to 50% range. The other thing that happened was the Fukushima accident in Japan highlighted the safety risk of nuclear plants. Still have nuclear, which is around 19% of the stack today. It's been pretty steady over time. It's still supposed to decrease slowly over time, but we now have incentive to keep the plants that are still open, open, and I'll get into that. So in Fukushima, there was a, a concern that these old plants, because most of the nuclear power plants are 40 years old or more, and there's a bunch of different technologies to talk about. But that was a pretty unique problem being on the coast in Japan and the way the heating and cooling system worked. It was susceptible to that meltdown. Ultimately, the health risk was de minimis in spite of the scare, and you had different reactions around the world. In the U.S., thankfully... They very quickly took a look at our nuclear fuel plants, reinforced the safety systems and cooling systems where they needed to be, closed a couple of plants that they thought this highlighted were an elevated safety risk, but otherwise just reinforced them and kept them open. What impact have those changes and this transition to cleaner fuel sources had to the supply and demand dynamics in the energy market? And then can we talk about specifically how Bistra fits in? So you fast forward to today and you've had this transition that has been at different paces in different places, but it has led to a market now where we have closed a lot of the old or carbon-based fuel source plants, replaced them with renewables, which has brought our carbon footprint down. And so when you look at energy-related carbon dioxide emissions, so this isn't all of the United States, but just the energy-related 
they have dropped from 6,000 million metric tons of CO2 emissions in 2000 to around 5,000. So most people don't know that. I mean, we've actually been reducing our carbon footprint from an energy. Now the pace needs to be faster and obviously we need to get on an absolute basis, get it down a lot more, but we've actually been reducing it now for the last 20 years, given what I just said. That's the good news. The bad news is, and we're finding this out now because of the brownouts that are happening and the weather-related risks that we're seeing in places like Northern California and some of the coastal areas as well with the storms, the system's a lot tighter. And the reason is, in spite of an overall nominal capacity that appears to be at or above what we had before, the reliability of the wind and solar is not there for obvious reasons. You need the wind to blow, you need the sun to shine. And those are intermittent, if you will. They peak at certain times during the day. Weather patterns can change it. And the ability to store electricity is actually really difficult. At the moment, the battery technology that we use is the same chemistry that was developed 50 years ago. It has its limitations. We're getting better at using them. And we do have some utility scale batteries. And in fact, Vistra has the largest two utility scale storage facilities in the world in California in Moss Landing. And they're very expensive and they only give you about four to six hours, <laughs> which is amazing, actually, when you think about the amount of time and money that gets spent on these things. But that's helpful, particularly if you're in California and you renewables are a third of your stack and you're having liability problems, these batteries are important. But it's not just the overall demand that's changed and the fuel source, it's also the load is changing. So when you're having your peak periods of electricity is also changing, which is making the demand supply problem even worse. And so my point being, it used to be in most of these markets, the peak, peak day would be four o'clock on an August afternoon, a hot, hot day late in the afternoon in California, but even in other parts of the market. And now because we're using electric heat pumps in more than a third of homes, and that's increasing, you're now having loads that are peaking sometimes on winter mornings or when you have storms and you knock out all of the alternatives, wind and solar, and you're dependent upon only more traditional fuel stack of coal, nuclear, and gas. And so now your capacity is down and your demand draw is up and you've got a problem. And so we've seen that in a lot of places. I met with a senior executive of a regulated utility that has business in the Northeast a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to him about New England. And he said, I'll put it to you this way, New England, which has avoided most of these problems so far, at this point, in his words, has one foot on a banana peel and another on a bar of soap. And so these markets are tight. And what we need is reliable baseload power. And that comes from nuclear power plants, gas plants, and the few coal plants that we still have open. Okay. So John, you've set up the groundwork very well. I'd love you to explain now how Bistra is positioned in light of these tight markets and then the secular shift to renewable energy. They are a set of assets run by a management team that 
are built for this time. They have all the fuel sources. They have a wholesale power team that can manage and see what's happening in the markets and take advantage of the volatility. They have a retail business, which is a natural hedge as well, but they still are net long power. And if you manage it appropriately in the market that is now basically short power and will be for years, because this takes a long time to fix, they are making more money than even they had expected and I think probably will for the foreseeable future. And so this is a business that, you know, you go back to a couple of years ago, they were hoping to make three billion of EBITDA and maybe a billion dollars of free cash flow. They're now making four billion of EBITDA and a billion and a half of free cash flow. And I'll get into my definition of free cash flow, which is different than you see on their reports because they give it to you before growth. I'm a little more conservative. I'm using free cash flow, as I call in the cigar box. So after everything, all in after working capital and growth capital, what is actually left over? It's around a billion and a half dollars today. The market has come their way. And then the last piece is the nuclear side of it. So we've gone from nuclear power plants that were all going to be closed because they were old and they're expensive. And there's the black swan safety risk and Fukushima concerns to now, oh my God, we're short power. These are no carbon. They're already here. We've reinforced their safety and cooling mechanisms. We need to actually keep them all open for as long as we can while we continue to build out and reinforce our wind and solar and decarbonize over the next 25 years. And so there's been this complete flip. And it's not only from industry, and regulators, but even environmentalists, which wholly mostly against nuclear 10 years ago, I'd say the split now is probably 50-50. The regulators have completely flipped so much so that in the IRA, so the Biden administration's legislation, they put in there a production tax credit as a price support for nuclear facilities to incent them to stay open. And it's remarkable. Most people still don't know about this. It starts next year. It pays a minimum, and there's some other nuances, but just simplistically, price of $43.75 a megawatt to a nuclear power plant that qualifies, and I can get to that, but it's a price floor. Now you have the nuclear stack, which Constellation Energy is almost all nuclear you have at Vistra one nuclear power plant and they are buying Energy Harbor, which is three more plants that are nuclear. And that is going to close this quarter. So they're taking their mix to increase the nuclear side of it. So you now have that value that's accreting to these nuclear plants. And it's not just baseload cheap power in a market that is inherently short in certain times, but it's also green. You're selling into a market that's tighter in the traditional sense, and then going forward, they're going to be getting premiums and they're starting to get premiums because it's no carbon power. And so for green hydrogen, which we can get into, for data centers, Constellation just signed an agreement with Microsoft for their new data center in Virginia to provide 24-hour green power to them, and it's at a premium. 
So you got a market where prices are up and then the nuclear side of it is now getting premium. So the value of those nuclear plants has gone up quite a bit. And so when you used to traditionally try to think about how you would value a business like this, high fixed costs, highly volatile commodity oriented end markets that would whip all over the place, just enormous volatility in the end market pricing, usually levered. These would trade for very low multiples. Now, for a nuclear power plant, and in particular, both Vistra and Constellation have good balance sheets, you have a power market that's inherently tight and will be for years. You're getting a premium for your green power, and you have a price floor. So put that into your DCF. It's worth a lot more. Vistra, particularly after they buy the energy harbor, will continue to be a very well-positioned set of assets with a management team that is extremely focused in on maximizing the value of these businesses. They're basically slowly going private by buying in the stock and returning capital in form of dividends as well. Just in the last four years, they've reduced their share count by a third, and they're continuing to do that in a marketplace that now has come their way. Obviously, when you're dealing with industrial utility associate industries, from a financial and analyst perspective, we look at it one way, but then what people see when they pay for their energy bills at the end of the month is different. And you kind of take us through from a first principles basis, how a business like this generates revenue and what the margin structures look like as a function of how it makes money. The deregulated construct has set it up where there's three main parts to the business of delivering electricity. One is the power plants that make it, the second are the transmission and distribution, so the wires that move it from the power plant to your home or your business. And then the third is the actual client relationship, what's now referred to as retail. And Vistra makes money on the first one. Obviously, they have the power plants and on the retail on the third one. They, they actually don't really have any of the T&D. And when you think about how much we all pay for electricity and U.S. consumer pays is something like 18 cents or a kilowatt, if you will. And it's as low as 12 and as high as in California, to my point before, given their regulatory push for renewables, the average consumer there is paying 28 cents. So it's a lot. And when you break down that, say, 18 cents, it depends on the market, but it's 20% the retail side of it another 20, 25% the T&D, so the wires, and then the rest, about half of it is the actual generating. That's how the revenue breaks down. And then the returns, if you will, vary all over the place for the participants in all three of those, depending on their cost structure. The retail business, although it's quite good for Vistra, is very volatile. You're inherently short power. And again, their integrated model allows them to source the electrons both from their own stack or their marketing guys can go out and buy it in the open market. So they're able to manage that volatility. And for instance, in the case of URI, a lot of the smaller retail players in the Texas market went out of business. And so they stayed in business given they were able to absorb the losses and They've grown quite a bit in that business, but that's a low return business. I'm going to say high single digit ROE. 
It's not capital intensive. So when you get it right, you can generate a lot of free cash flow, but it's not a high return business. And then the T&D business also is mostly regulated. The returns are in the 8 to 11% ROE, and that's what's leveraged because it's just an infrastructure business that's mostly regulated in almost all the markets. And so that's a low, stable return, low growth business as well. And then the power plants is where most of the volatility really lies because of the volatility of electricity prices, which move all over the place. And again, it's a business that has booms and busts over the years, has also been a very low return business. I mean, generally speaking, the electricity business is a bad business. (laughs) You may find it funny to have me say that, but it is. It's very capital intensive. You've got commodity markets, you've got weather, you've got regulators. There are very well-run utilities that have good regulators that have been pretty good businesses. But even those that are very well-run are low-growth, low-return businesses that the market trades them like bonds for obvious reasons. What you really only get is the dividend yield and some very modest growth. And then every once in a while, in a flash, you go out of business. (laughs) which doesn't happen very often, but you've seen it in Northern California and the wind and the fires and now Hawaii Electric. There are instances when tail risks are enormous. And so it's a tough business. The returns are inherently not very good. But as I said before, we are in a different place now than we have been for decades. And not all assets are positioned well for it. There's been a lot of money thrown at the alternatives. You've seen it. And we can talk about some of these stock prices or companies that boomed when there was no interest rates and a lot of green money chasing the decarbonization theme, which is happening. It's not that it isn't happening, but as you've got a lot of companies that their participation really doesn't end up being nearly as profitable as they thought it was going to be and their balance sheets don't have the strength to absorb the volatility. So that's where we are at the moment. And a traditional player like Vistra that has all of the above on the fuel sources, so everything from old coal to new wind and solar and the nuclear in the middle with a very good balance sheet and seasoned management team is particularly well positioned. So a key question for utility investors and utility customers is typically the allowable level of return on equity. And so I'm just curious, in the context of a business like this, are there any limitations on who they can charge what? I hate to say it depends, but it really depends on what region you're in. For the fully integrated electric utilities, which is still a large portion of the United States, you've got a state electricity council that oversees the rates that are charged and also the returns the local utility gets. So you have to set those up through the regulatory agencies, but they work hand in hand and understand it's a cost plus model in a sense. And as long as you can justify, these are my expenses, which of course get it audited and they discuss these things all the time. And then they say, we're going to need to charge X to cover all the additional expense for our investment in a new power plant or another set of transformers or whatever might be going on, that gets a pass through. And so you get those rates blessed. They don't always agree with you. Sometimes they give you a lower number. It's a to and fro of being a regulated entity. 
for the electricity generating side, it also depends on the market. So you have capacity markets like we have in PJM where you submit your prices you're willing to sell at two to three years in advance based on the supply demand model that the regional operator has set up, which plants they will include and not include. And they'll give you a reliability payment and then also say, we'll we'll sell at this price or more. And then they'll also put a cap on it. So there's ranges. And in Texas, it's pretty wide open up until a point. They put a limit on the price at any one hour can be. And it used to be $5,000 a megawatt, which might sound crazy, but you can imagine in these times when you get these shortages, prices spike pretty heavily. After URI, they capped it at $2,000 a megawatt, which is still a lot when your average price is, as I just told you, through an average year is 30, 40, 50 bucks a megawatt, but that's over the entire calendar year. So you do have some price limits they put as well, but underneath that, you can charge whatever you can sell into the marketplace. It's a different framework depending on what region you're in and who you're selling to. So if you think about the free cash flow generation of the business, the ability to reinvest versus buyback stock, what is the proper capital allocation strategy for a business that is as entrenched as this one is, but with a lot of disruptive forces on the come? There's no simple answer to that. I think it depends on your set of assets. For Vistra in particular, and I don't want to speak for them, but just watching the way they have gone about it, what they're largely doing is taking the free cash that is generated from their more traditional carbon based assets. So the coal, which they've been closing, and they're going to close another set of plants here in the next five years. And taking that cash flow and helping them drive the growth in the renewables and the acquisition of Energy Harbor, so increased exposure to nuclear, and then the other half of it returning it to shareholders. They are now in a position that when they close Energy Harbor, they've created and this is post-close, but a subsidiary called Vistra Vision, which is going to have all the no low-carbon assets in it. So the nuclear plants, the retail business, and all the wind and solar. And that's going to be about 60% of the pro forma EBITDA of the business. And given the interest in the world of infrastructure and green capital, that is looking for homes, and there's not a lot of places to go in the electricity markets to do this, they're able to now raise capital in that subsidiary for very low cost because of the demand there. So they raised a billion dollar green preferred a year ago, part of the Energy Harbor transaction, the two majority shareholders, Avenue Capital and Nuveen are taking equity in the Vistra Vision subsidiary, believe it or not. Total consideration for that deal is seven and a half, eight billion dollars orders of magnitude. It's a little more complicated than this, but it's half stock, half cash, if you will. The stock portion is for the most part being taken by those two shareholders and they're going to get 15% of the Vistra Vision equity and the implied value according to their documents. Those two shareholders, Vistra's got their own documents that are going to come out. 
value the Vistravision subsidiary at about 10 times EBITDA, so at a much higher premium than you see for the overall Vistra or any other emergent power asset. So my point is they can now, I think Vistravision is self-financing. Mostly it's going to be, I think, continuing to acquire nuclear facilities, which are now all over the country and going to be rolled up, I think, by Vistra and Constellation. And then building out mostly solar. They've got a really nice pipeline of solar business that they're going to continue to grow. And they're particularly well positioned to do that as well. But that business, and if you talk to the management team, they think it's pretty much self-financing. So now all of the cash flow that you get from the other traditional side, the 40% of the EBITDA, the old carbon assets, is going to be returned to shareholders. Ultimately, could you split the business apart? At some point, I think that probably happens. But at the moment, given where the stock price is, and even though it's up a bunch over the last couple of years because of the growth of the cash flow and the reduction in the share count, it's actually at the exact same multiple of free cash flow that it was two years ago. (laughs) Amazingly, I was just on with the management team recently post earnings, and they are not going to stop. And they've said this to the marketplace, they're going to continue to be returning capital to shareholders, shrinking the share count and increasing the dividend. Given the importance of reinvestment in this type of business and capital allocation, storied business, that's the merger of two separate and challenged entities over time. Presumably management is pretty important here. And we haven't spent a lot of time talking about who the players are. Can you just take us through who are the most important players regarding the business and how instrumental management is into navigating this backdrop? Absolutely. We've talked a little bit about the merchant energy space has been a highly volatile and difficult industry to manage through. And you've got the famous or infamous incidents of both Enron and also the bankruptcy of TXU Energy as well. But there are a host of other restructurings and businesses that have come and gone over the years. So like a lot of capital-intensive, volatile end markets, commodity-oriented businesses. The management teams are important. The balance sheets are important. And it's also important to have folks that have experienced a lot of what has gone on in the industry. How do you manage risk in this sort of environment? Although trading, if you will, and wholesale operations can sometimes put people off because they think of hedge funds and highly volatile, unpredictable businesses, In fact, when you're doing it inside a Vistra that has both the customer relationships on one end and also the physical plant to generate the electrons and then a history of managing these assets, you can optimize the value of these businesses by committing your capital sometimes and trading around it. And so experience as traders in the electricity and natural gas markets is also really important. And Vistra has all of that. So you've got the CEO, Jim Burke, It's been in the industry for decades. He was a CFO most recently, but before that, he really grew up on the retail side of the business at both Reliant and then TXU Energy's retail business. Then he became the COO of Vistra, CFO, and now CEO. So he has a tremendous amount of experience. He's a very straightforward executive, practical, cautious as it relates to the balance sheet and understands the volatility that is out there. And the head of wholesale, so the head of this generating and electricity part of the business, which is three quarters of the company, 
Steve Moscato, he was originally an energy trader. And then at one point was at Luminant, which was the generating part of TXU going way back. This is 25 years ago. And he's been running the commercial business, if you will, at Vistra since 2016. So these are veterans of the industry. Scott Helm, the chairman who's on the board going way back, was a Goldman banker. But then he was part of a team that put together Orion Power, which was a private equity financed power business based in the sort of mid-Atlantic Baltimore area. He was a CFO there for a while as well. So he also has a tremendous amount of experience in the electricity markets. It goes on down the line. This is a who's who of people that have spent a lot of time in the both regulated and unregulated electricity and utility markets. And I think that's absolutely critical. And you put that hand in hand with a balance sheet that has modest leverage for this industry and the ability to absorb the volatility. And it's been a pretty powerful combination. I think the other question that people have in the context of Vistra, just the broader electrification of the grid, everything that we're doing to create incremental demand on electricity, presumably positions them incredibly well. Are there other areas that they can expand into through acquisition that would be a nice complement to their business beyond some of the subsidiary structures that they're doing? The answer is yes. And again, back to my history of the merchant energy power space, like any commodity-oriented end market, the best companies have strong balance sheets to be able to withstand the volatility and the unknown events and then to pounce when assets come up for sale in distress situations, which, by the way, is happening as we speak in the solar and wind markets. You've seen what's happened to a lot of these wind projects, which are now uneconomic and they're stranded. You're seeing what's happening in the solar markets with some of these development stage companies that have gone very aggressively building out solar fields with cheap capital, but are not at the moment profitable after interest expense, particularly given what's happened with interest rates. So you're going to see a whole bunch of stranded assets here. I think they will be very picky because you have to be, and this is the right team. They have been in the power markets, this group. If you sat on their trading floor, which is their wholesale business, you've got people there that have been analyzing and watching and trading in the electricity markets for decades. It's not just some startup that's venture back that wants to save the world, which is noble. These are people that are knowledgeable about how these markets work. And it's not just solar panels that in a field somewhere can generate electricity at what appears to be an attractive price. You actually have to have it hooked up into a market that needs that power when you are creating it with creditworthy counterparties, it's very complicated. And so that's what the world is reckoning with today. Vistra will, I would be surprised if you don't see them make some acquisitions here. Obviously, they got to get the Energy Harbor deal closed first, which is, I think, a fabulous transaction. They bought that for on the face of it, 10 times EBITDA. But when you actually look at the earnings power of these businesses marked at today's markets, they paid more like seven times, which I think is going to, in retrospect, look like a very good price. I think they'll still be interested in nuclear assets. Constellation by far has the most 
then you get Vistra. It's highly fragmented. And then there's a whole host of singular nuclear facilities that are owned by a lot of these regulated utilities, uh, some of whom will be happy to sell it to you because it doesn't really change their business all that much given they're highly regulated. And if they feel like they can get a, a quote unquote premium price, they may sell it. So you're going to see acquisitions of nuclear. You're going to see some distressed assets in wind and solar that they may do. And they're also developing their own solar in the markets that they know well. So I think that's where you're going to continue to see them grow. You alluded to a couple of the things that you think are important to recognize from a risk perspective with a business like this. If you were to dream the dream on how this plays out in the most positive way possible, what do you think the setup is? For the Vistras of the world, and there'll be others, but they're pretty well positioned. You are actually part of the solution over the next 20 years as you transition your own stack, you being Vistra, and the country does it as well. And we continue to close the coal plants and anything that's on the gas side that you can't clean up with new carbon capture technology and scrubbers and so forth to both wind, solar, and also ultimately some distributed power. But the point being, they still end up being one of the largest providers of electricity in the United States, but they will have transitioned from being 90% carbon-based and energy 1.0, if you will, to the reverse, three-quarters energy 2.0, low, no carbon, and maybe a quarter of the business would be still some what would be deemed to be reasonably clean carbon. And so as you do that, they can continue to be a consolidator and grow and ultimately be valued like an enduring, sustainable infrastructure business, which ironically, the multiples for that kind of business are actually pretty high. So that would be the dream. They've got a long way to go. It takes a long time. There's a lot of capital and time required to do this. And in the interim, next three to five years, there's a mad scramble in a lot of these markets to build natural gas plants, actually, which someone had asked you, are we going to be building natural gas powered electricity generating plants in the United States? They would have laughed at you. Now we're doing it. <laughs> we, Texas, Voters just voted in and affirmed a financing package for the state of Texas to give low-cost funds to incent people to build some natural gas-powered plants in that market to fortify the reliability while we transition to renewables. And I think you're going to start seeing that in other markets as well, because the regulators are looking at all this. And as much as we all want to reduce our carbon footprint, you don't want to be the politician or the regulator that's sitting on top of a market that runs out of electricity for all the obvious reasons. So the heat is on, so to speak. And that's just as a market that Vistra can do well with and also use their balance sheet and knowledge and market power to continue to transition to lower no carbon. And so, John, our concluding question in these conversations is always Two things. And as a generalist, curious your view. When you think about your experience investing in Vistra and your study of Enron and TXU over the years, what are some lessons learned here that you can apply to other investments that you make? And beyond that, when you think about Vistra's ability to navigate a dynamic environment and energy, 
capital structures, tail risks? What are lessons that you take from the Vistra story that should be applied to other management teams outside of the potentially the energy industry? So there's a series of ways to go about that, Zach, with capital intensive businesses, industrial, if you will, or commodity oriented, which this is, you need a strong balance sheet. And I know that may sound (laughs) very simple and obvious. It's amazing how many times companies get themselves upside down with their balance sheets relative to the cycle and their business model. I've seen it so many times. I'm seeing it again now. You're seeing it in the alternative space as we speak with wind and solar and give you a long history lesson in other markets too that are outside of electricity. So you need a strong balance sheet to absorb the volatility that's inherent and then take advantage of points of market weakness. Two is industry transitions, if you will, disruption, all these words that people throw around, they take a very long time. This one, for obvious reasons, is also going to take a really long time because of the inherent nature of the need for reliable electricity. Here we are trying to change the whole structure of the business, decarbonize what had been built up over the last 100 years, all the while making sure everybody's lights go on every day. And you just can't do that quickly. And so this takes forever. I think the market's finally coming to grips with that is that we can go fast, but the pace needs to be one that has some balance to it. So these transitions take very, very long periods of time. That's another lesson. And then finally, the importance of management, which is also I know very simple, but boy, you get a reminder here with particularly in commodity-oriented industrial end markets, which are inherently low return, volatile businesses that usually trade for low multiples. Some of the best investments we've ever had are in markets like that, because when you find the management team that can take advantage of that volatility, it's amazing how successful you can be. It's not easy but you can find the right team that has the courage and the knowledge and the asset base to take advantage of these markets. So the the importance of management is obviously a very simple and time-tested concept, but boy, in these markets, it is absolutely critical. These are not businesses that can just run themselves. You have to be an active manager, a risk manager, that is superior to manage through this. Well, John, this is a fascinating company that operates in what has been a fascinating industry with quite interesting stories from TXU, from Enron. I think the only thing we know for sure is that the next 10 years probably won't look like the last 10, but beyond that will be a fun one to watch. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 